If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. The former British Prime Minister Arthur James Belfour once said this. He has only learned, half learned the art of reading, who has not added to it the more refined art of skipping and skimming. Now, as somebody who spends an awful lot of time reading, I can add a hearty amen to that statement. A person really truly needs to learn how to skim and how to even skip when they're reading. Uh, when it comes to skimming, that's an important trait in, in being able to digest large amounts of material because it allows you to get to the essence of what the author wants to communicate without having to read every single word on the page. And then the art of skipping comes in handy because sometimes it just allows you to move on past some of the boring stuff that you just don't want to spend time reading and getting to the more important things that are there. Uh, I would not have made it through college, seminary, and everything else that I've done if I had not learned how to do both skimming and skipping. But this is the one thing I would add. You have to be careful when you choose to skim and to skip. Skimming and skipping help when you're reading emails or news articles or you're doing research or you're studying or things along those lines. They're not always helpful when you want to read your favorite novel by the fire over a cool day. You want to be able to digest every single word that comes off the page there. And I would also suggest to you that skimming and skipping is not a really good advisable way to read your scriptures. When you open the Holy Word of God, skimming and skipping ought not to be exactly what we, are, what we engage in right away. And, and to give you an example, though, that, that happens a lot, and it happens a lot right here in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, when people turn there, particularly at Christmas time of the year, most of the time people are looking for that Christmas passage, and so they just jump right down to verse 18. And verse 18 is good. Verse 18 says this. After It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was his follow after his mother. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now that verse right there is filled with mystery and intrigue and a little bit of scandal is in there. And then also that verse, though, opens up for us the mystery of the miraculous nature of the conception of Jesus Christ. All that's right there in verse 18. And so people generally want to just swarm right there and, and they skip over the first 17 verses. But Matthew didn't just start with verse 18. He started with, significantly enough, with verse 1. And he worked his way down until he got to verse 18. And so many people will skip or skim over those passages. And if you're one of those folks who probably looks at these and thinks, oh my goodness, that's the begot passages. Oh, surely there's got to be something better than reading than just the begot passages. And I would say to you, there are certain passages of Scripture that are much more inspiring to read than there are other passages of Scripture. But I would also remind you of this, of what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And even more so, what I want you to know is that 
when we read this passage of Scripture, and we are going to read it together this morning, when we read the first 17 verses of this Scripture, what I hope that you do when you leave this place today is not only recognizing that God inspired all of those parts of the Bible as well, but that you walk away with a deep conviction of the grace of God on full display in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in full disclosure, I want you to know the reason that I chose this passage. I wanted to choose it because as we, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we finished up our study through the book of Haggai. If we, when we got to the end of the book of Haggai, there was a man there whose name was Zerubbabel. We read about him last week. He was a man that, that God spoke to through the prophet Haggai, promising that he would return his signet ring to Zerubbabel in a reversal of what he had said to his grandfather Jeconiah. And I titled that sermon, God's Christmas Card to Zerubbabel. Well, the reason that I wanted us to come and study Matthew is because Zerubbabel gets a shout out right in the middle of this begot passage. And so that just put the hook in me, and then it was pretty much done after that. So with that as an introduction, let's begin reading this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Terah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab, and Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David, the king. David, the king, begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah, and Hezekiah begot Manasseh. And Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel. Shealtiel begot, there's our guy, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud. Abiud begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim. Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Mathan. And Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. 
and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your love and for your mercy and for your goodness to us. Thank you for being our, our father and for calling us sons and daughters. Thank you for the opportunity we have to open up your word. Now I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, draw us to the truths that this text contains and then change us by the power of your Holy Spirit working through us. This is my prayer and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I think by way of background, it's probably good for us to go ahead and remind ourselves that this was written by Matthew. Matthew was the, one of Jesus' disciples. We would also know him by the name of Levi. Levi was a tax collector whom Jesus looked at and said, follow me. And the Bible tells us that Levi, Matthew, immediately left his very lucrative business of being a tax collector because he skimmed off the top and could keep whatever the Roman government would allow him to do. It caused him to be hated by his fellow man, but he was probably quite wealthy. Well, he left his tax collecting job to follow Jesus. And he did that, no doubt, because there was something special. There was something unique about Jesus that, that intrigued him. And so, so I think it's very clear that when Matthew writes what he does, he is writing in ways in order to communicate to us those things which were unique and special about Jesus. It's also important that we note that he was a Jew. And as a Jew, he wrote to Jews. And therefore, throughout his writing, we find that Matthew has an eye for connecting Jesus, the Messiah, to the Jewish people. He has an eye for presenting Jesus as the promised king who, unlike other kings, rules not by law, but rather rules by grace. Which is why I believe that he actually begins his gospel the way he does. He doesn't start in verse 18 where many of us would like to start. He starts back there in verse 1 and works his way through and he does it for a reason because he wants to communicate the gospel of grace. Matthew begins with a genealogical record that traces the lineage of Jesus from Abraham all the way to David and then from David all the way down to Joseph who Though he was not Jesus' biological father, he was Jesus' earthly father. And such a genealogical record shows that Jesus was a part of the kingly line, that he was a legitimate heir to the throne of David. But even before we get to this genealogical section, notice that in verse 1, there's something very clear that Matthew wants to communicate to us. He tells us who it is specifically that he's writing about. And he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, of Iesus. That's the way it was pronounced in Greek. That's the, that's the transliteration of the Hebrew name, which would have been Yeshua, or as we would say it, Joshua. And that name carried with it meaning. The name Jesus carries with it the, the Hebrew understanding of God will save, or the Lord is salvation. That's what Jesus' name means. And it actually means, if you go on and, and look at it further, down in verse 21, we read that the angel of the Lord came to Joseph, and Joseph told him that Mary would bear a son and that his name was going to be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So very clearly in chapter 1, Matthew wants to connect us to the fact that he is speaking to us about Jesus, the one whose name means the Lord will save and the one who himself is the Lord who will do the saving. It's amazing the way that Matthew even connects us to that on the front end. So that's the first thing that we recognize is that this is about Jesus. But the second thing is, is that it's about Jesus Christ. 
Now, that term Christ is not Jesus' last name. So often when we think about that, we just think, well, that was those names always go together. Not so. The, the Christ is a title that is given to one who is anointed. It was a, it's the Messiah. He is the one who the Old Testament spoke of. For all of the anointed ones in the Old Testament were the prophets and the priests and the kings. They were anointed in order to show that they had been set apart for a specific purpose. Well, Jesus is also, he is the fullness of that Christ, the one fully set aside to accomplish the salvation of his people. But that's still not all. Notice that Matthew identifies Jesus as the Christ, but also as the son of David. That identification tells us that he is a descendant of the royal line of David. You may recall that David, when he was king, Israel was in its heyday. Even under Solomon, uh, his son, the, the whole nation of Israel knew great prosperity. But by the time of the birth of Jesus, nearly all of its former glory had evaporated. Israel was now under the rule of Roman emperor. The nation was, had experienced significant oppression and disgrace under that Roman rule. And consequently, there was a very strong hope of the Jews in the promised king that God had said would come from David's line. We looked at that promise some last week, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89. You'll find the passages that relate to the fact that God had said, David, from your seed will come a king upon whose throne you will reign forever. And for a thousand years, the Jews have been clinging to that hope. By identifying Jesus as the son of David, Matthew is telling his readers that Jesus was the fulfillment of that hope, that he was the king that Israel had been waiting for. He was the one who would do exactly what God had promised, the one who would establish the reign of David's throne forever. So, so when Matthew tells us that he's the son of David, he's laying that, that whole identity with all of the promises that God had given to David. That's still not all because he also tells us he's not just the son of David, but he's also the son of Abraham. That's the last title that we read there in verse 1. And it links us back to the father of the Jews. Every Israelite would have called himself a son of Abraham. And Jesus also claimed himself as that same heritage. But Matthew is pointing to something even greater here. Just as the title son of David was laden with significance, so too is this title son of Abraham. You see, God promised Abraham back in Genesis 12. He says, listen, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who, who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And then he says this, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the promise made to Abraham. From your seed will come one who will be a blessing to every nation. That promise was reiterated again in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, where the universal implications of this promise are made clear. He says, in you, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So God's promises to Abraham was that he would have a son who would ultimately not only be a blessing to his own people, but that he would be a blessing to every, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And Matthew, when he identifies this book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, said Jesus is that fulfillment of that promise. 
So in verse 1, Matthew begins by telling us who Jesus is. And he tells us all the promises that are wrapped up in it. We shouldn't skip over that and skim through it too quickly. We ought to think about what it is that Matthew is telling us and, and contemplate it. And when we do, when we truly chew on some of that, it actually draws us to something even greater. Because you see, the fact that Christ truly is the son of David and the son of Abraham tells us that this kingdom that he came to inaugurate is not your typical kingdom. In fact, it's a kingdom of grace. How can we know that? Well, what do we know about David? Well, David was a man after God's own heart. The Bible tells us that. He was also Israel's greatest king. We know that as well, but he was also a rascal. He gotten himself into a lot of trouble. You'll recall how terribly he sinned with this one named Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife. He committed adultery with her. Not only did he commit adultery with her, but he actually had her husband Uriah murdered in battle. So we, we look at David's biography, we add to it, not only was he a man after God's own heart and Israel's greatest king, but he was an adulterer, he was a murderer, he was a liar, and he was one that the Bible says shed so much blood that God refused to allow him the privilege of building his temple. That's who David is. What about Abraham? Well, Abraham was also a sinner. He also was an adulterer. He also was a liar. Abraham also demonstrated a lack of patience in God's timing, which is why he ended up fathering a son with Sarah's maid named Hagar, only to later send Hagar and that son named Ishmael away from his home. And what that shows us is that even though both David and Abraham loom large in Israel's history, they were nevertheless sinners, and they were big-time sinners. And yet, from their seed was born the Son of God. Now, friends, that is a marvelous picture of God's grace. What should be of great comfort to you and to me is that rather than throwing David and Abraham away, which, by the way, God, who is perfectly holy and sinless and righteous, would have had every right to do. But rather than doing that, God instead sent them a Savior through their own bloodline. And we can see that even as we look at the other names on Jesus' family tree. And I know some of you are worried that we're going to look at every single one of them. <laughs> Just calm down. It's good. I want to highlight a few, though. It's worth highlighting. It's worth you going back and doing the due diligence of looking at all these names. Verse 3, there's the story of Judah who fathered Perez and Zerah. And listen, if you go back and read that story, you'll find that that he fathered those, those sons through incest with his daughter-in-law named Tamar. In verse 7, you read about Solomon who, followed, who fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam, he was a man who, according to Old Testament history, was so prideful and he was so arrogant in the way that he ruled that the nation of Israel did what? Split into two different kingdoms. No longer unified, but divided. Verse 9, we read of Uzziah. Uzziah was a man who died in shame as a leper because he dared to enter the temple of God and offer an unlawful sacrifice to the Lord. Also in verse 9, you read of Ahaz. 
Ahaz fell into gross idolatry and the Lord judged him for it. In verse 10, you read of Manasseh. He was so murderous and so filled the land with Israel with bloodshed that God cast him out of the land, wouldn't let him back in. And then let's not forget Jeconiah. He was listed for us there in verse 11 and 12. We learned about him last week. He was a man who was so wicked that God placed a curse upon him and upon his offspring, removing him as his signet ring, as we read, and causing him and all of Judah to be taken into Babylonian captivity. I love what Greg Allen has asked with regard to this genealogical section. He says, if you wish to create an impressive genealogy for the Savior, would you construct it of such people as these? I mean, that gives, that gives us further testimony to the veracity of Scripture, right? Because if you were making something up about some, some fella that you were going to try to present as being somebody that he was not, would you include in his genealogy people of such character as this? Certainly not. And yet Matthew presents us with an unvarnished version of exactly who was in Jesus' family tree. And that tells us something. That's significant. It's of importance to us. In fact, it tells us the first thing that we need to note today, and that is this. What this presentation of this family tree reminds us of is that Jesus overcomes our failures. Jesus overcomes our failures. You see, this one who was born as both the son of David and the son of Abraham, we know that he was not far removed from the fallenness of those in his own bloodline, which is great news for folks like you and me. Because if he could overcome their failures, guess what? He can overcome mine and your failures as well. You see, who Matthew is presenting to us is a Savior King who was born into this world in union with fallen humanity, but he is also able to overcome that fallenness. And that's how we can know that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of grace. There's also another twist to this family tree, and that is because in, in predominantly in Jewish society, genealogical records were typically patriarchal in nature. In other words, they only focused on the fathers. They didn't really focus on the mothers, and we can make all kinds of statements about that. That's just the way that that was and the way that those genealogical records were created. But what's interesting about Jesus' record is that Matthew actually highlights five women, four in addition to Mary, his own mother. And I think because that's the case, we ought to take an opportunity to look at each one of them. The first one we find is there back again uh, is, is of Tamar. We see her there in verse 3. That story is in, is in, comes from Genesis chapter 38. And listen, her story, if you like mystery and intrigue and scandal, Genesis 38 is the chapter for you. Let me just briefly summarize it by saying that Tamar described, dis, excuse me, disguised herself as a prostitute in order to engage in, a, in an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law after her husband had died, in order that she might have children. Not exactly the person that you'd want to highlight in your family tree and maybe hang her picture on the wall in your home. There's also Rahab the harlot. She was also there in verse 5. We find her story in Joshua chapter 2. She was a Canaanite. She was one who was not a part of the covenant uh, promises that God had given to his chosen nation. In fact, she was, a, a, she was part of a nation that had been cursed by God. Added to that, though, she was, her chosen profession was, again, that of prostitution, which only further confirmed 
her depravity. And yet she is a part of the family tree of Jesus. There's also Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Moabite. If you trace her lineage back far enough, you'll find that she was a descendant of Lot and the incestuous relationship that he had with his two daughters. As a result, the Moabites were considered a nation cursed by God, according to Deuteronomy 23. And they were people who were not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. And then there's the one who had been the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba. According to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we read that she had been up on a rooftop bathing when David saw her, lusted after her, sent for her, and as a result of that relationship with her, she became an adulteress. Not only that, but Bathsheba had married Uriah, who is described as a Hittite, and many scholars also say that she too was probably a Hittite, which would make her an outsider to the covenant of Israel. What we recognize when we begin to look at this genealogical section with a little more detail is that Matthew identifies women in Jesus' family tree and not just any kind of women, but women who were Gentiles, women who were adulterers, women who were sexually immoral, women who were outsiders and outcasts to the promises of God. And the, their inclusion in this family tree might make us want to know, well, why? Why would Matthew, who was a Jew writing to Jews, write about women who no good Jew would ever want to have anything to do with? Well, it's because he's telling us something else about Jesus that we ought not to miss. Notice the second point on your outline. Not only does Jesus overcome our failures, but Jesus welcomes the outcast too. Jesus welcomes the outcast. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that that is good tidings of great joy to people like you and me. Because for the majority of us sitting in this room this morning, I'm just going to guess the majority of us sitting in this room this morning are people who are outside the covenant promises that God made with Israel in the Old Testament because we're Gentiles. We, by very nature, would be considered outcasts. But not only that, our sin makes us outcasts. Don't let it bother you that Matthew highlights women of such questionable and sinful character. Rather, let it remind you of the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus Christ delights in welcoming and in saving sinful, immoral outcasts into his presence. That's how we know that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of grace. If we compare Jesus' genealogical record here, his family tree to our own, and then if we moved it to the, the, the modern understanding of what we have in our homes, the Christmas tree, what we might say is this. Jesus' family Christmas tree, like all of ours, has a lot of ornaments hung on it, and some of them are just not as pretty as others. In fact, some of the ornaments hung on Jesus' tree, as we've already looked at, were just downright ugly. And when you begin to look at that and you realize, and if you start looking at your own family tree, you begin to realize, hey, the same thing could be said of me. But there's one last one that needs to be looked at. We shouldn't skim over it and skip past it too quick. It's the guy that I've already let you in on. It's the reason that put the hook in me to begin with. It's Zerubbabel. We find him there in verses 12 and 13. He just, his ornament just sort of hangs on Jesus' family tree, just kind of doesn't get a lot of attention. 
But you'll recall at the end of Haggai, God said, look, Zerubbabel, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you back on my finger as my signet ring. And you remember why that was so important. It's because his grandfather, Jeconiah, had been removed from God's finger because of his wickedness. In fact, he had not only been removed as God's signet ring, God had placed a curse upon him. In Jeremiah 22, verse 30, God says, You write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and rule in Judah ever again. But Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel had gotten this beautiful Christmas card from God through the prophet Haggai that says, I'm going to make you my signet ring again. But nevertheless, even though he enjoyed that special relationship with God, Zerubbabel never sat on David's throne. And neither did any of his offspring. That curse still lasted generation after generation after generation until Jesus. That's what alerts us to the final point that I want you to see on your outline. Jesus not only overcomes our failures, he not only welcomes the outcast, but brothers and sisters, he breaks the curse. Jesus breaks the curse. Notice the careful precision with which Matthew describes the relationship from Joseph to Jesus there in verse 16. Joseph was a blood descendant of Jeconiah, the man upon whom God had placed the curse. But when Matthew describes what happened here, notice what he says. All the other sons that he has described were begotten by their fathers. Not so in verse 16. Notice that Matthew says, the husband, Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. In other words, Matthew draws our attention to the fact that Jesus was born not of the seed of Joseph, but one conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. Joseph was, excuse me, Jesus was Joseph's child legally because Joseph adopted him. And as an adopted child, he legally had all the rights and all the privileges that a natural child had. But he was not of Joseph's bloodline and therefore Jeconiah's curse could not reach him. As Greg Allen has written, He says, Jesus, our Savior, inherited the full rights of royalty through the royal lineage of David without inheriting the curse by being adopted by Joseph. In other words, as we've noted, Jesus breaks the curse. And brothers and sisters, that is of such absolute essential importance for us not to skim over or skip past. Because you see, not only did Jesus Christ break the curse placed upon Jeconiah and his offspring, but even more importantly, it is because the virgin-born Son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ breaks the curse of sin that hangs over all of humanity, including every single one of us. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He said, sin entered the world through Adam and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because 
all sin. Matthew must have had that kind of thought in mind when he wrote his introduction to the gospel. Because you remember, all the way back in the book of Genesis, Moses decided to give us a genealogical record of Adam. And in Genesis 5, verse 1, listen to how he begins chapter 5. He says this, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And then he goes on to talk about all of Adam's children, all of his grandchildren, all of his great-grandchildren, on and on and on and on. And do you know what three words are always attached to every single name on Adam's family tree? And he died. And he died. And he died. All of Adam's family tree has dotted with it, and he died. Matthew comes along and writes Matthew's gospel and he uses almost the exact same words and says this, the book of the genealogy, not of Adam, but of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here's the thing. Adam's family tree ended with and he died. But Matthew doesn't end that way though there is a death. Matthew does tell us of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he does tell us about his death. He said that he was a perfect, sinless son of God, but that he died at the hands of his own people because they refused to accept him, and that he suffered on a cross, suffering the punishment that all of his people deserve to have but yet he accepted it upon himself. And the Bible says that they pulled him down from that cross and they laid his dead, lifeless body in a tomb. So in that regard, Matthew's genealogical record follows the same as that that was written of Adam. But here's the major difference. It says that on the third day, Christ rose from the grave, thereby breaking the curse that had been placed upon all of humanity through Adam's sin. Brothers and sisters, do not miss what Matthew is clearly communicating to us here. He is telling us that with this new genealogy, this new one of whom he is introducing to us, that he is able to break that death curse that had, been a, had its hands wrapped around our necks for all of those centuries. Jesus Christ breaks the curse. And because that is true, then this is the greatest news that I could ever announce to anybody. What Matthew has so cleverly and clearly communicated to us, a passage that is often skimmed over and skipped past, is that Jesus Christ is the promised Savior King who has come to earth to overcome our failures, to welcome us into his kingdom, even though we were outcasts, and to break the curse of our sin. And that leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Jesus is Israel's true king. He's the anointed savior of all nations who has come to break the curse of sin and bestow his grace on sinners and outcasts. And if you want to go ahead, you can write three more words right after that and say, just like me. Because all of us find ourselves in that grouping. This morning, I just want to conclude by making a statement and asking a couple of questions, and then we'll close. Statement is simply this. 
The Bible clearly claims Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You can argue with it. You can not like it. You can refuse to accept it. The scriptures clearly communicate Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here's the question. Is he your Savior? The Bible tells us that all who will call upon him will be saved. All who confess their sin and trust in his atoning sacrifice will be forgiven of their sins and granted eternal life. Have you done that? Is he your Savior? I want you to know there is no better time than right now to fall on your knees before the one who alone can forgive you and give you eternal life. If you have done that, then the real question for you is this. Are you living your life under the lordship of Christ? He has come to overcome your failures and he has come to pull you who were once an outcast and once far away from him back to him. He has broken the curse of sin which hangs over you. Then let me ask you, does your life and your testimony bring glory and honor to him? Are you living your life as a loyal subject of this Savior King who calls you by His grace into His kingdom. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that this is a text that should not be skipped over and skimmed past. Rather, it is a text that demands questions that should we skip them, we do them to our own peril. Because brothers and sisters, this is truly the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.